Welcome to the Leeds Church Institute podcast. To find out more about the Leeds Church Institute, visit lcrleeds.org. Welcome to the annual Hook Lecture 2021 podcast, which was delivered at Leeds Minster by Dr Carmody Gray. The title of the lecture was Faith and Climate Change. Thinking about what do we want to sustain? A brief instruction to our speaker. Carmody is Assistant Professor of Catholic Theology at Durham University, has received several accolades for her work on theology and religion from various universities, including the University of Cambridge, and is a columnist for The Tablet. We hope this podcast inspires questions, thoughts and reflections post-COP26 and we welcome any feedback and comments on your own journey in this area. Thank you everybody for being here and everybody online who we sadly can't see but it's very exciting to know that you're all there. Um, I had uh, surgery recently which makes it a little bit difficult for me to stand so I'm going to try and stand. I can't actually lean on this um, which is unfortunate but I'm going to try and stand but if I pick up my crutch I hope you will, will forgive me if I interrupt, interrupt to, to pick up my crutch or maybe sit down we'll see how we go. I don't normally write sort of long form what I'm going to say but I actually did for this occasion because it's quite a time we're living through and I wanted to get it right. I wanted to say what I, what I meant to say. Um... And I ask you as well to forgive me if this is rather sombre. But it's quite a sombre moment, I think, that we're in, all of us. So I'm going to speak for about 45 minutes, um, and then uh, then we'll have um, an opportunity for you all to respond, which I really look forward to. So why are we here? Not only here in this beautiful space, uh, but here in this historical moment as a human family? It's a real question. Why are we here in this moment? A few weeks ago, I was at a meeting of the world's faith leaders at the Vatican. The president of the Pontifical Academy of Sciences was there. He informed us that his one-year-old granddaughter is likely to become an adult in a world which is uninhabitable. As a child, I was numb with horror contemplating the certainty that one day the sun would explode and engulf the earth. That's due to take place in around four billion years. Now we live in a world in which what is at issue is whether or not it will be habitable in just one generation's time. The Paris Climate Agreement uh, is non-binding, unenforceable and already unheeded. It intended to limit warming to two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Its odds of succeeding, according to a recent study, around one in 20. Let's say we manage to limit warming to two degrees, which judging by current progress will need a miracle. We will then have to handle only a sea level rise of several meters around the world the abandonment of the Persian Gulf, and the extinction of one of the most biodiverse environments on the planet, which also happens to be one of our greatest natural glories, which is the world's tropical reefs. Climate scientist James Hansen calls two-degree warming a prescription for long-term disaster. 
this long-term disaster is currently the best-case scenario. A former director of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, Robert Watson, suggests that three degrees of warming is the realistic minimum. This scenario is more like short-term disaster. In this disaster, we will see the loss of most coastal cities. Consider how many cities that is. Four degrees of warming, which is by no means unlikely. We'll see Europe in permanent drought. Huge swathes of China, India, and Bangladesh will become a desert. Polynesia will be underwater. And the American Southwest will be uninhabitable. At five degrees of warming, some of the world's leading climate scientists speak about the end of human civilization. And this is not impossible. Five degrees is not impossible. I am 38 years old. All my life, people have been talking about stopping climate change, and I am tired of it. I am tired of public voices expressing noble sentiments which add up to nothing. Many years ago, I became one of those voices, and now I am tired of my own voice too. There were exits from this highway of destruction. We talked loudly about the importance of taking them, and then we watched as they flashed by. As the world after COP26 waves goodbye to some more exits, I will not trouble you with either inspiration or admonishment. I want to do something different with you, something I think hasn't been done enough. I want to think with you about why we are here, carefully and deeply, because new directions are needed. Earlier this year, I was privileged to hear the current chair of the IPCC, Dr. Ho Sung Lee, express his feelings about our situation. <clears throat> the question that keeps him up at night, he said, is not what is happening to our Earth. We know that. We know what's happening to our Earth. It is not what should we do. We also know that. The question that keeps him up at night is, why do we not do what we know we should do? He had a weary disbelief about him when he said this. The echo of St. Paul's words was loud for me. Romans 7.15. I do not understand my own actions. That is the question for all of us. Dr. Lee's question is the question for all of us. Nothing has stood in the way of change except ourselves. I understand why Greta rails against our leaders. Our politics are greenwashed. And by greenwashed, I mean they look greener than they are and they're made to look greener than they are. But we live in a functioning democracy. We in this country, we're lucky to live in a functioning democracy, and we must take responsibility for our politics. Robert Pilk's so-called iron law of climate policy states this. When policies on emissions reductions collide with policies focused on economic growth, economic growth will win out every time. Economic growth is actually incompatible 
with halving our emissions by 2030, which is what's required to prevent uh, more than 1.5 degrees of warming. Our leaders do as they do because we as an electorate still choose economic growth over emissions cuts. So it's not only or even primarily to our leaders, but to ourselves that we must pose Dr. Lee's question. Why have we not done what we knew we needed to do? Why do we go on doing what we know we should not do? This is what now needs explaining. Not the planet, not the climate, but humanity itself. We have not paid attention to what a human being is. We haven't stopped to think deeply about what really moves us. When I say moves, I have both meanings in mind. To be moved in the sense of touched or affected, and to be moved in the sense of motion that Aristotle used, which is to say to be changed or to be drawn to a new position by some power or attraction. We haven't paid attention to what really moves us. It's not the forces that are in nature, it's the forces in ourselves that we haven't understood. That, I think, is extremely clear from our current situation. So we'll just rewind a tiny bit. Nearly everything we understand now about fossil fuel emissions leading to global warming we understood by 1979. Some people understood before then, but at least by 1979 it was very clear. We've done more damage to the climate in the years since then than we did in the whole rest of human history put together. Not only was the knowledge not enough to stop the damage, once we knew, we actually started doing it more and more. It's not especially shocking by itself that we have accidentally started destroying our home through fossil fuel emissions in just the same way as it's not especially shocking that people used to smoke when they didn't know it was killing them. We simply didn't understand what we were doing in the Industrial Revolution. We didn't know that we were warming the earth. What is surprising and what calls for explanation is that once we found out what we were doing, we didn't stop. But we haven't paused at all to learn from this history. Instead, environmentalism goes on doing what it's been doing for a long time, repeating numbers, reciting statistics, presenting data. Madness, um, as they say, is doing the same thing repeatedly while expecting a different result. Looking around us, we see extremely clearly that reciting frightening statistics in the public eye has consistently failed. Calmly informing a person that eating junk food will cause an X percent increase in their chances of developing bowel cancer does demonstrably not stop them eating junk food. The environment is rather similar. Not only does our present strategy not work, the reciting statistics strategy, it actually makes things worse. Ever greater exposure to shocking data increases a sense of indifference to the data and a sense of hopelessness. Further, since the uh, heralded apocalypse manifestly doesn't arrive with a clap of thunder, we stop believing that the data has anything to do with reality. Things seem normal enough, don't they, right now? 
So the missing link in our response to climate change is precisely not information. If it is knowledge we lack, then it is knowledge not about the universe, but about ourselves. That's the missing link. To quote Julius Caesar from Shakespeare, the fault is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. This question is not just about stopping climate change. It's about how we will respond to the changes that are now inevitable. There will be massive displacement of peoples. These things are quite certain now. There will be massive displacement of peoples. There will be shortage of material resources, including food and water and clean air and safe living space. There will be increased political instability, increased violence, increased conflict, both within and between nations. We face a single future as a human family in this situation, uh, which will require cooperation between us at a scale that we haven't yet shown ourselves capable of. In fact, we've shown ourselves very much not capable of it. So Dr. Lee's question is really of existential importance in the true sense of existential. It's about our continued existence. If information is not enough to bring us to our senses, what is? Our continuing inability to react appropriately to the facts tends to result in a kind of systematic cynicism, a despair in ourselves. This is often expressed with the sentiment that, quote, human beings are not rational. People often utter this sentence with a triumphal sense of unique insight. <laughs> and they experience it as a negative truth, a hopeless truth. But it is not either necessarily negative, nor is it surprising. It's actually rather a recent supposition that human beings either could be or should be rational in the now understood sense. People who declare this have actually taken the rather helpful step of identifying that our anthropology, that is to say our understanding of what a human being is, is a wrong one. The model of human being that we've been working with is a wrong one. A shorthand way of describing this model that I uh, think is helpful and clarifies what's, what's at stake here is um, a computer anthropology. It's a picture of the human being as an information processor. If you input the right information, it will output the right result. But we're mistaken when we conclude from the failure of this model that human beings are not capable of reasoned action. And I hope I've now convinced you that that model really is, is wrong. Human beings don't work like that. That's pretty obvious. <laughs> so we're mistaken when we draw a cynical conclusion from that, that, that human beings are not capable of reasoned action. It's simply that human beings are not computers. There's nothing especially distressing about this. It would be rather distressing, actually, if it was true. It simply requires respect. Those who train horses must respect the way that horses learn. If you try to train a horse using the same method with which you try to write software, you will fail. The environmental movement, with an amazing disregard of its own message that we are, quote, part of nature, has generally failed to notice that human beings are more similar to horses than they are to computers. We do not need to have information inputted. We need to be habituated 
trained, enculturated, uh, socialized, as well as reasoned with. As we all understand with children, so with adults. We need to learn to want the right thing. This only happens, that learning only happens by repeated practice leading to new habits. We need to learn to act not for what we want now, but for what we want most. All children have to learn that. And adults, in fact, <laughs> are just grown-up children. It takes long and deep training to do this. This is what we could call the formation of desire. Doing it well takes a knowledge and a skill that is at least as complex and demanding as anything in natural science. It's what faith traditions specialize in. So this anthropology of the faiths, this picture of, of human beings that I'm talking about that we find in the faiths, sees that human beings are not information processors, but meaning makers. We do not neutrally assemble facts according to putatively objective evidence. We are not governed primarily by what we take to be true, but by what we take to be important. A well-known demonstration of this is Simons and Shabri's famous basketball experiment. Probably all of you have been shown this on YouTube by, by some, someone or other. So we watch a basketball game and we're asked to count how many players, uh, how many times the, the ball is passed. At the end, some um, very smug person points out to us that a gorilla walked across the court during the game and we didn't notice. The observers don't see the gorilla because their attention isn't there. That's not what they've been told is important. What they've been told is important is to count the number of times that the ball is passed. So they don't see the gorilla. Something only becomes a fact for me once I identify it as being worthy of note and set it apart from all of the other things that I might notice. The etymology of the word fact actually alerts us to this. A factum is a made thing, a constructed thing. What's the point here? Facts by themselves do not have any motivational power for us at all, by themselves. They gain motivational power when they relate to or connect with something that is important to us. It's our values that cause us to identify certain things as facts, to put them in an order of relevance, to prioritize some over others. For example, the mere fact that you are in pain does not all by itself make me respond to you. David Hume was right about that, I think. It may be that it doesn't have any significance for me that you're in pain. The fact, the fact that you're in pain needs to relate to a sense I have of what is important. For example, an imperative to help those in need. In the same way, the mere fact that around three billion lives will become unlivable with the amount of warming that we're currently facing, 2.4 degrees at a minimum, may have no importance for me. And in fact, manifestly, it doesn't. If the fact that those lives will become unlivable has no importance for me, then it will, knowing it will change nothing about my behavior. This all sounds very banal, but the most obvious is the most neglected. Some of you might have seen David Foster Wallace's famous address. Water, this is water. Fish neglect to notice water, not because there's so little of it, but because there's so much. 
I find it totally baffling how many environmental interventions are still based on the supposition that our real problem is ignorance of the facts. It's so plain that that's not the case. I can stare the facts of climate change in the face, but the difference between the price of a plane ticket and the price of a train ticket may actually matter to me more. And apparently it does. The real drivers of human life are values. But we no longer understand or respect the distinctive kind of rationality with which we think about values. This is what used to be called moral reasoning, right? Knowing how to make discriminations of value, knowing how to order things in accordance with their importance. In a numerically dominant society, which ours is, and the love of statistics and environmental um, campaigning is a reflection of this, we simply do not know how to value value. Human beings actually don't express their sense of what's important to them in units. We instinctively know this, and we capture it with phrases like, he knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. But in a society as heavily scientized as ours is, we no longer understand moral reasoning, the kind of rationality with which we actually think about that, as reasoning at all. Our notion of reason only recognizes quantitative measurement. It has become one-dimensional. So we see that we, we as human beings are more interested in meaning than we are in facts. And then we wring our hands and call ourselves irrational. But it's, it's not that we're irrational. It's that a different type of reasoning holds primary power for us. The reasoning of values, of importances. To put this more provocatively, human beings are more creatures of love than they are creatures of truth. Truths that don't relate to what we love have no power for us. It's precisely this grasp of human motivation that faith traditions possess. They understand that love is more motivating than truth. Only a society as enchanted by computer anthropology as ours is could actually hold this against us, could hold it against human beings that they search for meaning over facts. I mean, that's like holding it against a tree that it grows towards the light. If we didn't attribute meanings to things, we would never act, because we would have nothing to act for. And this is why the strangest thing about the global conversation about sustainability is the almost complete neglect of the incredibly obvious question at its heart, which is, what do we actually want to sustain? In four or more decades, academic and public conversation about sustainability has almost never posed this question. What do we want to sustain? What's the point? When we talk about our planetary future, which we do more and more and more, and we will do more and more and more because it will be more and more at risk, when we talk about our planetary future, we need to ask what it is that actually matters to us. What matters enough for us to organize everything else around sustaining it? Our conversation about sustainability is fatally hampered by this incredibly ingrained habit of talking about it only in empirical terms. But the most important questions are not empirical. What do I and we actually care about? Without engaging people at this level, there is no motivation. And where there's no motivation, there is no action.
during World War II, what this nation stood for mattered enough to the people in this country that society was totally reorganized around the goal of sustaining it, sustaining what this country stood for, however you might happen to express that. It meant enough to us to invest everything, in fact, to offer up a whole generation of lives to sustain it. Only a week ago, we celebrated Remembrance Day. I'm looking at a memorial just, just in front of me here. That's what our acts of remembrance testify to. Look how much this mattered to us. We gave our very lives. That's how much it mattered. That's what it looks like to want to sustain something. Of course, this is the logic of martyrdom, which is one of the deepest logics of faith, one of the most characteristic logics of faith. Quite plainly, it can be used for terror as well as for good. But it is the deepest logic of human life. It calls for respect. We need to make it work for good. In the Hebrew scriptures, God's love for his people is expressed uh, in his faithfulness to them. I used to find this strange that God goes on and on about being faithful in the Bible. Why does God always say that he's faithful when he could just say he loves us? Then a great woman taught me why. That great woman is my mother, who I think is watching. She taught me that faithfulness is love through time. Faithfulness is love carried through. Faithfulness is love demonstrated again and again and again and again. Psychology and sociology and anthropology have lately told us what the Hebrew scriptures always knew, which is that love is something like loyalty. That the thing that most evokes our commitment, that most galvanizes us, that most energizes us, is other people. Our relationships with other people, and obviously from a, a, a kind of faith perspective, some faith perspectives, God. Our deepest need, after biological need, is to build and sustain positive relationships with the people around us. Why am I saying all of this now? Because our instinctive computer anthropology makes us very slow to embrace what faith traditions cheerfully affirm, which is that we are social animals, and that is the critical factor in motivation. We consistently misdiagnose ourselves as independent individual actors. And this has seriously undermined our response to climate change. Because that sense of belonging is a critical factor in social motivation, in actually changing behavior. As uh, anthropologist René Girard put it, human beings are mimetic animals. And by that he meant we are imitative animals. Our first character is to imitate those around us, to copy those around us. We learn to respect ourselves through the respect of others. We learn what we should believe from what others around us believe. We learn what we should want from what others around us want. Modern thought recognizes this in the dominance of the, of the notion of identity in our discourse, right? Which has kind of taken over a lot of our, of our politics and a lot of our, of our conversation. 
a person's perception of who they are is actually defined by how others perceive and label them. We really do belong to each other. Identity is a gift or sometimes a curse given in community. We know, for example, that how much money I possess is not what determines how wealthy I feel. It's how much money I possess compared to the people around me. That's very important. It's embarrassing as well, right? The fact that we're embarrassed by it tells us something about how enchanted we are by this picture of ourselves as individuals who act independently from everybody else. In the same way, we know that your intelligence is not the primary indicator of what you will believe, nor is your exposure to the right information. That is not the primary indicator for what you will believe. No, what most governs what you believe is the beliefs of those around you. Because we're enchanted by our computer anthropology, we drastically underestimate how much other people are the critical influence on our behavior. Faith traditions do not underestimate it. For example, what is required to be a Muslim is to declare that one is a Muslim in front of other people. What is required to be a Buddhist is that to declare that one takes refuge in the Sangha, right, the community of those who practice. To be a Jew just is to be a member of a people. And, of course, in Christian tradition, the ecclesia, the church, is the body of Christ. It is the deepest identity of Christians. In fact, in patristic thinking, being saved consists actually in that new identity, which is membership of that body. John Paul II put this anthropology in its very strongest form. There is no such thing as a person alone. To be a person literally is to be in relationship. Relationality is what defines personhood. So, why am I saying all of this now? Because environmentalism, the environmental cause, really needs to learn this anthropology from faith communities. It's absolutely no surprise that the strongest predictors of individual environmental behavior are not your, is not your psychology, it's not what you believe about science, it's your demographic. That is to say, it's those among whom you live. It's the social norms of those among whom you live. Information that threatens a valued social identity, such as a political affiliation, of course is going to be ignored or denigrated. So, for example, there is the dangerous perception, and it is extremely dangerous, that environmentalism is a form of elitism. The reason for that is because uh, being ethical is a, being ethical is associated with the luxury of having a high degree of choice in what you consume. Right? This is a major problem with ethical consumerism. It's essentially a privileging of those who have a choice. And as a result of that, it comes to seem a class issue. And so, whether or not you're an environmentalist or not, uh, whether or not you're an environmentalist, actually represents an identity claim. It's nothing to do with information. In the same way most well-known example, conservative politics in America is completely identified with loyalty to fossil fuel industries and is often most prominent in communities that depend on fossil fuel industries. So being an environmentalist is seen as a betrayal of your community. The issue is not whether or not you think climate change is happening. It's to whom you are loyal. Because that's what governs what you will do. It also governs what you will believe. 
Understanding the social context of environmental messaging is absolutely critical for connecting to motivational sources. Environmentalism needs to be framed as, as cohering with and expressing what it is that I most deeply want. And that want is socially defined. It's just no use talking about the importance of sustainability without asking what we want to sustain. And both terms are crucial. We and want. Obviously, this is also true within faith communities. Environmentalism needs to be made part of the belonging of faith communities. Faith communities are already learning how to do this, and I've seen so many examples of this. So many examples. They're mobilizing the resources of their traditions to demonstrate that investment in our natural environment um, is actually a, a core constituent of social identity within that tradition. They're already doing that, some more than others, but they're already doing that. The challenge to which faith communities have to now rise is to make membership of the community of humanity a fundamental form of belonging. Faith identity and human identity need to converge. This is the challenge for all faith communities now. For Christians, this means showing that one cannot belong as a Christian without also, and perhaps first of all, belonging as a human being. The web of loyalty that we're talking about, that this loyalty that is the, the, the structure and source of motivation and therefore of action, needs to spread wider. It needs to spread beyond the bounds of my faith community to the whole of humanity. It needs to spread from within each faith community and it needs to employ the logic of each tradition to do that. Religions are experts in expanding circles of loyalty like that. Beyond kinship groups, right? The original circle of loyalty is a kinship group, yeah? Those to whom I'm genetically related. Religions are experts in expanding loyalty beyond that. In fact, that is thought by evolutionary um, science to be one of its key biological functions. Religion's biological functions is giving us a loyalty to those with whom we are not genetically related. The Catholic Church, for example, just to speak only of my own faith, just as an example, bestows on its members an identity which gives them a real kinship with 1.3 billion other people. People with whom they otherwise have nothing whatsoever in common beyond having two arms and two legs. Who would have thought that from the family kinship groups of chimpanzees, we could get to an identity-forming community of belonging containing one-sixth of humanity? Nobody could ever have guessed that. You would never have predicted it. Faith communities really know about the power of loyalty. They know about the role of loyalty and motivation and action and behavior. And most importantly, they know how to expand it. They know how to expand loyalty. So I'm going to move out of the slightly descriptive mode that I've been in and into uh, a normative mode, that is to say, saying what I think it is that we should do. Or to be more precise, what it is that we should sustain. What is it that we should sustain? To answer my own question. 
What is it that we should want to sustain? A Jewish philosopher, Hans Jonas, and a Catholic philosopher, Romano Guardini, answered this question like this. What we need to sustain is the possibility of genuinely human life. What Pope Paul VI said about the Catholic Church, I would like to apply to faith traditions more generally. They are experts in humanity. And what they consistently teach us and show us is that our humanity is, yes, a gift, but it's also a task. It's a summons. It's a calling we have to rise to. It's a responsibility we have to assume. It's a potential that we have to realize. We live in a time when people talk constantly about the preciousness of plants and animals and mountains and rivers and ecosystems and and enjoin us continually to care more about the earth. That's the primary mode of environmental rhetoric. I myself have exhorted dozens and dozens and dozens of audiences in just that way. Care more about the earth. Look at it. Look at how beautiful it is. Look how glorious it is. Look how precious it is. Care more. Act to save it. I, I stand by that. But I've come to think that lack of love for creation is not really our problem. The particular feelings of reverence and awe that we have for nature, this is a curious fact, are distinctive of European romanticism. Right, this is the kind of spiritual taproot of modern Western environmentalism. But strangely enough, it's in the time of European romanticism and in the home of European romanticism that we have done more damage to nature than at any other time in any other place. This is an age in which animal charities, as is well known, receive more money in this country than human ones, in which Disney reigns in millions of hearts, in which the BBC Natural History Unit, with which I have the most bottomless reverence, has filled the living rooms of this country with the glories of nature in a way that previous generations couldn't have even dreamed of. We live in an age and in a culture which has a very high regard for the worth of natural things. So I used to think that Hans Jonas and Romano Guardini in formulating that imperative, that what we need to sustain is the possibility of genuinely human life, I used to think that they were being shockingly and short-sightedly anthropocentric. Now I think they were prescient. It's not a lack of love for nature that is going to kill us. It's a lack of love for ourselves. Nature is going to survive global warming. It's already been through five rounds of great extinctions. This is the sixth great extinction. There have been five before now that we had nothing to do with. Many individual species will not survive, that's true. But nature has written off dozens of them, millions of them in the past, and, and, um, and will write off many more in the future, no doubt. The planet itself is not what's in danger. Nature itself is not what's in danger, ultimately. What's in danger now is us. I hear in so much environmentalist rhetoric an understanding of human beings as fundamentally and only a problem. A problem on the earth. We're not infrequently compared to cancer. A cancer on the earth. 
multiplying uncontrollably and sapping the earth of its, of its energies. This kind of self-understanding will not motivate us. What it actually results in is a loss of self-respect of the irreplaceable value of the human. You might be thinking, isn't human arrogance the problem? We've heard a lot about that, right? Human arrogance is our problem. That's the cause of the environmental crisis. Well, maybe. I won't give anything away about that. Maybe it's the problem. But even if it was, arrogance, as we well know, is a mask for real lack of self-esteem. It's a mask for a kind of paralyzing uncertainty about your own worth. We all know that, right? Healthy spiritualities teach that uh, self-respect underpins and doesn't contradict true humility. Really, to esteem the human is to see it clearly, its pathos and its glory. That kind of self-respect is what we've been lacking. So my answer to our question is this, and I'm concluding now. What we should want to sustain is humanity itself. Humanity itself should be our guiding value. What we need to love is humanity. The loyalty that we need is a loyalty to the human. It's this that faith traditions articulate peerlessly, in my view. <laughs> a devotion to the human project, to the project of being human, which is beautiful and dangerous and difficult and risky and always unfinished. But faith traditions express a devotion to the worthwhileness of that project. Christianity, above all, of course, which holds that in the words of Vatican II, my favorite words from Vatican II, Second Vatican Council, God has united himself in some fashion with every human being. John Paul II said, the human person is the way of the church. That's actually how the church goes forward in time. It's by means of the human person. It's humanity which God appoints as his image on the earth, regardless of what we might think of that, right? But this is the logic of Christianity. It's humanity which God appointed as his image, and it's humanity which is taken up into the divine life. And yes, in the incarnation, God sanctifies the whole material world, but it's by means of humanity that God does so. So what I would like to see now is the world's faith traditions standing together in a new humanism. Not a naive humanism. The faiths, in fact, are much less naive about human beings in general than secularism has been. This would be a humanism which very clearly sees our smallness of heart, but never gets tired of insisting that we're more than that. We need a humanism which refuses both denial and despair, which shows the beauty of humanity so that we will consider ourselves valuable enough to save. This is how the facts, the facts, might actually come to matter to us. So that we can find within ourselves and in each other the hope and the courage that are actually going to be needed if we're going to keep our home habitable. Because this planet really is the home of humanity, and it's the only home that we have. Thank you.
We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the Leeds Church Institute. To find out more about the Leeds Church Institute, visit lcileeds.org.